Well, no one ever said that marriage was a cakewalk, but some do wonder if the Christian view of marriage is too restrictive. First, too restrictive in who it relates to, namely that marriage is applied exclusively to a man and a woman. And second, some wonder if the Bible is too restrictive regarding divorce. And it's certainly no secret that when you compare what the Bible has to say about these topics with today's culture, it's clear the viewpoints are worlds apart. What's even more sad is that when there are those whose faith has been deconstructed on account of these topics, these two worlds, namely the world of scripture and our world, are too far apart for some to comprehend. Consequently, many of those who are quick to go the way of culture have swept Christianity into what they consider an irrelevant dustbin of history. And make no mistake, once the Christian begins thinking the Bible is unfair to confine marriage to a man and a woman, or it's unreasonable and what it has to say about divorce and remarriage, it's just a matter of time before doubts, compromise, and even perhaps apostasy kick in. And when you add all of this to the churches who have dropped the ball and how they have handled a couple going through a divorce by disciplining them and making them a public skeptical, it's no wonder some have left the church feeling shamed, confused, and rejected as they thought Christianity no longer makes sense to me. So how are we going to navigate these difficult issues? And how do we make sense of the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Well, that's what we're going to discuss today on this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. Welcome to the show that loves doubters. Here on Christianity Still Makes Sense, we are making sense of the doubts that can deconstruct our Christian faith with near apostate, now apologist and pastor, Dr. Bobby Conway. I'm your host, Tim Hall. Well, Bobby, we've talked a lot about the moral revolution our culture is going through. I guess it's no surprise to see that this moral revolution impacting marriages, right? Uh, that's very true, Tim. I've said many times uh, there used to be a time when the culture and the church shared similar values. That's no longer the case. As you mentioned, our values are worlds apart. Yeah. I've also shared the moral trajectory where we take a moral value, namely divorce, let's say, like the topic before us today. At one time, the culture rejected it, then it tolerated it, then it accepted it, uh, then it celebrates it, and then it rejects you if you don't get in line. Right. And that same line of moral thinking has been all over the place. And we see that in the topics uh, like marriage or LGBTQ and other things happening. So today we celebrate the things that we used to decry, even going so far as to throw divorce parties. Um, I kid you not, in an article I came across by Emma Singer, Divorce Parties Are Trending was the title and everything you need to know to throw one. And she spells out tips for celebrating a divorce and the kind of party you could have. And she advised when you throw a party, some of the types of things she was saying, like keep it intimate, only those close to you. Pick a location, right? Like pamper yourself, like a wellness center or a glamping trip. Send out invites uh, and bonus points um, for slogans like till divorce do us part. Uh, keep the vibe upbeat. Basically, no grieving allowed for the divorce. Have a cake, make a toast, plan an activity like burn the wedding dress. These were types of things that she suggested in her article. Now, this doesn't mean, Tim, that we can't understand that some marriages have been hard and people might be ready for a fresh start. Not at all. 
but we don't celebrate divorce. A divorce is a sign of a shattered dream, of something that didn't work out. It's not something we celebrate. It's something we grieve, learn from, and move on. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, it's kind of warped when you think about it, celebrating divorce. I mean, really, like, you know, yeah. really, speaking of divorce, talk to us a little bit about the, the stages of divorce today and why people typically uh, get divorced. L- let's just discuss some of the issues about why people end up divorced. Well, uh, let me just share with you some statistics first. Uh, nearly half of all marriages end in divorce. Okay. So that's tragic, right? So 40% of first time marriages will end in divorce. 60% of those will end divorce that are on their second marriage and astounding 73% of those on their third marriage will get divorced. If couples live together, Tim, uh, before they get married, they have a 40% higher chance of divorce. I mean, on that alone, I would think, uh, use wisdom. Like if the odds are already highly stacked against you yeah. for a divorce, that is to say, if 40% of first time couples are going to end up divorced anyway, why raise the stats 40% higher potentially right. with cohabitation? Yeah, uh, totally. America has the sixth largest divorce rate in the world as well. Uh, but according to a 2019 CDC study, uh, Divorce in America happens once every 42 seconds. There are 86 couples divorced per hour, 2,046 couples per day, 14,346 per week, and a whopping 746,971 divorces each year. Interestingly enough, in one study entitled Divorce and Death, it shows that broken marriages can kill at the same rate as smoking cigarettes, indicating that the risk of dying is 23% higher among those getting divorced than married people. That's sad, but not surprising when you consider the stress that divorce puts people through. But regarding your question, why people are getting a divorce? Well, the number one reason is infidelity. In fact, studies show, Tim, that 25% of married men and 15% of married women have had a sexual affair. Other reasons that people give for divorce are things such as the inability to communicate, financial struggles, an abusive spouse and addiction, weight gain, loss of attraction, holding different religious beliefs. Some of these are the various reasons that people give. But when we come to the Bible and we think about Malachi in particular, and you think about this alarming phrase where God says, I hate divorce. And we think about the amount of divorce that's happening in our culture. That's not God saying he hates those who get divorced, but rather he hates the consequences that it causes the broken covenant, the, the, the broken dreams, the disillusionment with kids. So no wonder many of our youth today, even fear getting married. Can we blame them? They think the odds are against them. Yeah. So what, Last word about the cause, as we'll see from Jesus' words today, hard hearts are the real cause, 
but more on that later. Well, I, I do want you to explain kind of God's view on marriage, but first I'd like to remind our audience that this show is supported by you, the listener. And one of the best ways that you can support this ministry is to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Look, I know that 70% of you watching are not subscribed to our channel. When you subscribe, your videos will show up on, our videos will show up on your YouTube homepage, and that makes it a lot easier to find us. But you can also listen to this show as an audio-only podcast. In addition to uh supporting us by subscribing to our channel. You can support us financially by visiting Christianity Still Makes Sense and clicking on Donate. So, Bobby, let's jump back into our conversation here. For now, let's rewind a little bit. We've discussed divorce, but let's first talk about marriage. What is God's plan for marriage? According to Genesis 1 and 2, marriage was instituted by God to be between a man and a woman, and Jesus reiterates this in the Gospels. In an interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus, we read in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 9. And I'll read these verses. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they no longer shall be two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, what can we glean from these verses? First off, testing Jesus, probably not a good idea. But what was the test? They wanted to know, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife. In Matthew 19, 3, it says, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Uh, For more on that, I would invite our audience to consider Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. There are different schools of thought, like the Hillel or the Shammai schools, uh, and you would see either a conservative or a real loose view of marriage as it relates to divorce. But as mentioned above, Jesus is teaching us that marriages deteriorate with hard hearts. That's the ultimate cause of divorce, growing hard toward one another Hmm. and growing hard toward God's picture of marriage. Uh, But there's two things that Jesus points out, Tim, that's interesting, that are not fluid but fixed. First, gender and then marriage. So consider gender. Jesus says, from the beginning, God made them, what? Male and female. So in other words, gender isn't fluid, it's fixed. The chromosomal structure confirms this. Marriage isn't fluid either, it's fixed. To deny that gender is fixed, you'll have to deny the scripture and Jesus' omniscience. Like as if Jesus wasn't aware of the great enlightened time that we're living in, Tim, where we finally know that there's different gender pronouns. No, Jesus already comes on the scenes in his incarnation, uh, you know, thousands of years after creation, right, of the first pair and says from the beginning, right, he created them male and female. So gender didn't change between Genesis and Jesus' earthly arrival. He wasn't ignorant. Now, sometimes people say Jesus didn't speak about homosexuality. Well, he didn't speak about pedophilia either. Does that make it right? Of course not. 
But he did affirm the Old Testament moral law, saying, I have not come to fulfill, uh, to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And notice, Jesus also qualifies the context of marriage in this passage between a man and a woman. It's fixed, not fluid. To deny that, we also need to deny the Bible and Jesus' omniscience. Not a good idea. So he next shows how then to have a healthy marriage. To your question, leave, cleave, and become one flesh. And then in verse 9, Jesus drops an anvil uh, by saying, in other words, don't let the court systems or your laws or humans decide. So what causes marriage problems is when people are still uh, overly tethered to their home environment and they're not learning to become one and cleave to each other. And that stuff can cause problems. So learning to cleave to become a one flesh unit is what God's after here. Well, again, let's talk a little bit more about what Jesus said in verse 9 there. What God has joined together, let man not separate. And and this is big. What exactly does he mean there? And are we permitted to ever get a divorce in that case? When you consider um, what you said in the beginning, Tim, that the culture and the Bible are worlds apart, uh, it's true. For the culture, marriage is fluid, not fixed. But divorce should be uh, an option uh, when, uh, and divorce should be an option, uh, whenever you aren't happy anymore. That's the way that our culture, culture looks at it. Yeah, totally. You know, so talk about a recipe for a lack of resilience, Yeah, uh, but that's our culture. It's hedonistic. It's egoistic. Do what's best for you. It's your self care. Imagine how hard it would be to stick to anything on that. The moment you aren't happy with your job, you quit. Right. The moment you aren't happy with your spouse, you leave. And today laws are passing in parts of the world the moment you aren't happy with your life. Die, end it, euthanasia. We need some grit, but that doesn't mean there aren't cases or times to adjust or have an exit strategy, strategy, but there needs to be biblical justification. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about those, the possibilities of divorce and what cases can, can divorce be permitted or, or what three views of divorce are there? You've talked about this before, but let's kind of dive in a little bit deeper. Let's talk about them one at a time. What are the options available to, that Christians have kind of put forth when it comes to divorce? Some would say that divorce is an option under two conditions. Uh, so first for adultery, um, or if a non-believer leaves you. And so they'll look at Matthew 5, verse 32, where Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then again, we read Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 19 and verses 9 to 12, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, we learn about this idea of being abandoned by a non-believer, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So that's the biblical data 
that would be there where somebody would say there's divorce in the event of adultery or if a non-believer leaves you, uh, you are permitted to get married again. Okay, so that that's the that's kind of the first view. What is the second view of divorce that some Christians hold to? Well, some say divorce is never an option, and they do so by arguing that Jesus was referring to the betrothal period when discussing adultery. And betrothal was like engagement, but stricter. So they'll say Jesus was saying the only way out of the betrothal period was if betrothal took place. So for example, in Matthew 1, verses 18 to 19, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Notice it refers to Joseph as her husband, and he resolved to divorce her. But this was during the betrothal stage that this is taking place. So we realize when we think about this idea uh, this is an extreme example that I don't think offers a lot of wisdom, and it's not the majority view. Okay, so we, we've covered two. Let's hit the, the third one. What's the third and final view here? Well, this is what I'd refer to divorce under the truly uh, uh, d- divorce under truly dire situations. Yeah. So Jesus shares what he did in the Gospels, but then Paul adds another condition, right? Whether um, a non-believer um, is married to a person and that non-believer wants out. So in other words, Jesus said the only way to get a divorce is if there is adultery. But then we see after the kickstart of the church, Paul leverages some wisdom and says, well, here's another reason if you're married to a non-believer. Now, some would say, uh, aren't you sliding toward liberalism here? Well, I think you can slide toward liberalism here, but I do think that we can recognize that wisdom is important. So first off, um, I've never told anybody to get a divorce. I try and help them reconcile in the event um, that they're not going to reconcile. I give them the two reasons that we can clearly see in the Bible, uh, divorce uh, where it's permitted, and that would be if there was adultery or a non-believer departs. Uh, Wayne Grudem talks about in such cases, like in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, to kind of stretch maybe the idea that there might be wisdom in different cases. Well, what might be some reasons that, you know, we could see divorce? Well, let's say a man and a woman get married. They're 22 uh, and he's a serial killer. And uh, she didn't know that. And he goes to prison and he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. And he, she's not going to even be allowed to see him. Uh, if she wanted to divorce him, even though he never committed adultery, uh, would I think that that's worthy of church discipline? Well, of course not. Or suppose somebody is married to somebody, right? World War II ends. Somebody's been MIA. And then 30 years go by. She's been waiting. Well, should she just keep waiting forever because, you know, she's not got a death certificate? Uh, I mean, at some point you think, well, he's probably passed on, right? Yeah. Or what about true physical abuse? Or what about a situation where a man has a sex change, has his male genitals cut off, he's wearing a dress, but he doesn't want to leave his wife. But his wife has to go around looking like she's in a relationship to another woman. So I think divorce should always be a last option. 
And I think people um, can come up with lots of false reasons to justify getting a divorce where they make it way too broad. But I do think you can leverage some wisdom given some of these examples that are extreme, but that's what I mean by dire. Yeah, well, and again, the first thing that you mentioned was adultery, and we know that Jesus kind of equates, you know, looking at a woman lustfully with adultery. So I think one of the other questions on the table here is what what exactly fits into that category of sexual immorality? Maybe you can expand on that for us. Well, the Greek word porneia refers here to physical sexual intercourse. It's not speaking about mental or spiritual lust, mm. but physical sexual intercourse. Adultery in the heart, as in Matthew 5, is not grounds for divorce. While it is sin and spiritually weighty, the physical consequences of physical versus mental adultery is drastically different, Tim. Those who say lust um, in one's heart is grounds for divorce are wrong. Uh, Will they be consistent when Jesus says, well, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've murdered. Should that person be tried for murder then? Of course not. Right. Uh, we're spiritually accountable before God for our mental life, but not before the court of law. Now, if someone doesn't get a hold of his or her mental life, it's probably just a matter of time before there is an actual affair. But regarding sexual morality, I don't think it has to be full on intercourse to qualify. Uh, for example, if someone was married to a person who paid a prostitute for oral sex on numerous occasions, would that count? It seems to me it would. I mean, there could be one person who had actual intercourse one time and another person who paid for oral sex a hundred times, but didn't have actual intercourse is the wife meant to stay with the latter, but can leave the former. So it's not that simple is what I'm saying, Tim. Right. And again, we're, we're being really honest here and this is fantastic. So uh, after the process of divorce goes through, some people would, would then question, well, can I get remarried? Uh, here's where the bar is really high and God's not going to lower the bar to fit, you know, our own depravity. He keeps the standard, right? But I think we should always remember his gospel grace is there for us when we fail to meet his standard. So those who got remarried unbiblically shouldn't think they're living in a continuous adulterous relationship. However, they should recognize it wasn't God's ideal, confess it, and then enjoy each other. Jesus' statement, he says, uh, where he talks about somebody who goes on and marries another implies that the second marriage uh, is, uh, though uh, it begins with adultery, it is still a marriage, right? Mm. And marries another. So once a second marriage has occurred, it would be further sin to break it up. The second marriage should not be thought of as continuing living in adultery uh, for the man and woman are now married to each other, right? So according to scripture, if someone that is a believer divorces a spouse due to adultery, the person who was cheated on in his contract is contractually free to marry again. But the person guilty of cheating would lose his spouse and also not be permitted to marry again perhaps presuming he's failed to be trustworthy. Once the person who was cheated on is married again, that wouldn't be considered adultery because that person was free to get remarried. That's what the scripture teaches. Now, if someone doesn't follow that, that doesn't mean it's the be all end all sin, but it should be acknowledged that it wasn't permitted. That also doesn't mean God won't bless that person's life. He's a good God and gracious and forgiving. So, Tim, I think it's worth stating that the church hasn't always handled people going through divorce well. 
uh, people get excommunicated from their church for going through a divorce and then go down the street and then go through divorce care or worse yet, quit going all together. Mm. And the latter doesn't create a transparent culture. As we wrap up, Tim, I would just say, I'm sorry to those who are going through divorce for their pain. If there's been any wrongdoing on their part, I just want to encourage them to confess it. I want to encourage them uh, if they're thinking about getting a divorce to make sure that they have biblical justification to not water down what God would have to say. And then I would just encourage them to be praying together. That's something really important. Studies show that couples that pray together stay together. Mm -hmm. And that is really significant. Why? Because it's hard to be bitter when you stay in a state of praying together. This isn't easy to cover in the time we did, but may God's peace be with people as they think about this tough subject. Amen. Amen to that. Well, to our audience, it, there's a lot of topics, a lot of nuances that we didn't get to cover in this particular video, as Bobby just said, with our time frame. But that's why I would invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, where uh, Bobby is continually releasing shorter videos. And we have the Making Sense of Scripture that comes out on Wednesdays, where we talk about this subject as well. So we would invite you to subscribe to our channel, and we will meet you next time on Christianity Still Makes Sense. Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. This show is just one of the many resources available to those who are doubting their Christian faith. You can also find others at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. This is a listener-supported show, and your gift of any amount helps shows like this continue. Click on the donate link on our website. Also, catch Bobby on Pastor's Perspective, where he answers your questions. Finally, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe and check out our other videos on the channel. This show was sponsored by K-Wave and Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa.